He started the timer. I'll start mine pretty soon. Uh, I'd like to preference my remarks today about speaking before you, but I'll forego that, and so that will be a blessing uh, to you. I would like to say with all sobriety that we're very thankful for the leadership of this congregation and for the sisters who cooperate so much in carrying out this meeting. These studies of this nature add to the collective knowledge of a brotherhood. We are all people who have, as a brotherhood, need to collectively continue to grow in knowledge, and these studies do that. And furthermore, they add to us also the wondrous blessing of spiritual kinship. And you cannot have spiritual kinship without some time or other having some association one with another. Well, I'll forego that. Let me now punch this pest. They asked me to speak a little bit about Bible, culture, and the church. Obviously, that title was far too broad, but there's all kinds of discussions that arise between culture and the Bible. And so therefore, I'd like to try and focus my remarks and let you know where I'll focus them today. Number one, there are a limited number, limited number of occasions where a Bible precept or a principle is illustrated by a cultural practice. And that cultural practice is relevant to the culture at that time, but not relevant to our present culture. So the question arises, what's some of the guidelines we can use for those type of verses so that we do not violate the concept of pattern theology? What's some of the guidelines that we can make a sound biblical decision that other people realize we're not just at a subject of whim and say, oh yes this, oh no that. I suppose two subjects that quickly come to mind would be what? The holy kiss and the washing of feet. And there's a whole other list of such things. Secondly, there are a number of occasions where critical matters of truth are declared in the scriptures, but today many people consider them simply irrelevant because they simply say, well, that was due to the present culture. Or many times they'll say, well, we just really can't decide what the cultural situation was at that time. And so therefore we can't make something applicable to our day and time. The question I'd like to spend a little attention on is, in these passages that this is commonly done, is there some particular variable or something that's mentioned in those passages that tell us you can't make a cultural appeal to get rid of that particular passage or that command? Of course, what quickly comes in mind is 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Timothy 2, 1 Corinthians 14, because there the idea of gender roles and the hierarchy of authority, headship and helpership. And as you well know in our present culture, we know what the culture thinks about gender, gender, gender roles. <laughs> in fact, once you get away from the Bible, after a while you don't know what to think about gender. But we'll leave that alone. 
But these are two of the things. Lastly, we will share a few reflections on the present culture. We should be very conscious that most of the present cultural views, especially of interpretation of the scripture, tend to minimize the authority of the scriptures. And in my notes, I have subtly denied the divine inspiration. The truth is we probably could cross out the word subtle. But these common new hermeneutical patterns take away from the divine inspiration of the scripture. Uh, secondly, we've gone so far away in the philosophical speaking of today, we've reached the idea that it's commonly accepted in the secular society that objectivity is an impossibility. That's really very true in our present secular cultural understanding. What has happened from that is then that the meaning of tolerance has been changed, it's evolved, and it has some very, very sober ramifications for the church. While many entertain that the problems with the authority of the scriptures is simply cultural conditioning, we don't believe the cultural conditioning of the scriptures is the greater problem. The greater problem really for us is, is for the faithfulness of the church to think about how the present culture influence us as we try to interpret the scriptures and to consider what is righteous or unrighteous behavior. The point simply is this, the present culture is so much about it, it, tend, it, has, it tempts our views and tempts people to revise basic scriptural meaning. Now, these are the things I'll try to uh, focus on if I can. Let me first share with you a couple of things you all know, but I think it's just important to the continuity of my lesson. Number one, let's recognize this, that the word of God is presented and is truly what? An enduring word. Whether you read the Bible casually or uncasually, what's one of the obvious things that comes out of so many scripture and that is God's word is enduring. It comes up time after time. The apostle Peter, you know, he was talking about born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible. And how significant that is because you can't enter the kingdom of heaven without being born again. But furthermore, in that very setting, he goes on and he says this, he says, the grass withereth, the flower thereof falleth away, but the word of the Lord endureth forever, and this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. There's one gospel message forever that's enduring that will last until the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's the only message that will save men. And it doesn't need to be meddled with men changing the definition of the gospel of Christ and the one faith. Uh, even as I say this, I realize that many might ask, well, Ron, why is this question that you've asked important? Why is it important? It's because we believe that the Bible is what? It's a Bible, we believe it's a book of pattern. The Bible is a book of pattern theology. How do we know this and why do we separate it from the words of men and their accomplishments? In John 16 and 13, when Jesus was of course trying to comfort the apostles for his departure, 
Howbeit, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. If pattern theology is a little too fancy term for you, I would suggest you just remember Acts 2.42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. I think that's a pretty good, I don't know if this is the right word, pretty good empirical definition of pattern theology. You have to follow what? The teaching of the apostles of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit directed them that, and so that which was given to them was to be what? Eternal. So thinking also, we're the household of God. We're in that fellowship of saints. How did that come about? By the apostles and prophets, what? They spoke the foundation, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now, what I'd like to do here, and I know you all agree with this in one sense, but what I want to look at a little bit is, we just can't arbitrarily eliminate an action by saying, oh, that was just culture. The world typically does that quite often today. But for you and me, we need to be able to give some Bible reasoning and guidelines when we say this cultural expression, which was relevant here, doesn't have to be relevant here, and still we can teach the same principle. And so we need to be challenged in this area uh, to do that. We need to think about God's word is a pattern for conversion, salvation. God's word is a pattern for worship. Worship has to depend upon what pleases God, not what pleases man. It's a pattern for us for our everyday lifestyle. And that becomes very difficult area because much of that area in the word of God, because it's universal in nature, covers much of that area with principles. And principles calls for people who are adults. And principles call for people who are not only adults, but also people who are dedicated. And so this area affects upon us in our thinking very much. Listen, culture embraces us daily. But few embrace the word of God daily to cleanse the daily cultural tint off of their glasses. If I was up to some powerful, uh, I guess I can still move. You got me all wired up, can I? I can move around. Okay, that's great. Uh, you know, if, if I could do some fancy uh, PowerPoint thing, I'd put a fellow up here and then uh, I'd have him. I would have him there looking at something and then I'd take another set of glasses and put them on it and I'd call it culture. And now he's looking through his eye, but he's looking through glasses that have been what? Tainted. Tainted by culture. And that's, of course, one of Satan's favorite ways because it's so subtle. And daily we're being embraced with this question and we have to think about this as God's people. The word of God, of course, is... What's overlooked is it's superintended by the Holy Spirit. Culture, yes, it embraces us daily. The Bible is an amusing, amazing book. One of the reasons is this. It reminds us that our culture can conditionally affect us while at the same time telling us that the truth that we need can be known. John 8, 31 and 32, most of you could probably quote it. 
If you continue my words, then you're my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. We need to recognize the influence of our own personal perception, but we also need to recognize that the word of God says we can overcome this to the point that we can know the truth. The fact that God's word is a book of patterns should not surprise us. God himself is shown to be what? A God of pattern. This was true even before the new covenant. Listen to Hebrews 8 and 5. Who serve unto an example and shadow of heavenly things. As Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, thou shalt make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. God's a God of pattern. Paul made this very clear in his preaching. In 1 Corinthians 4 and 17, For this cause have I sent unto you Timotheus, who is my beloved son and faithful in the Lord, who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways, which be in Christ. Underline this, as I teach everywhere in every church. When the word of God gives through the apostles a solution to a local church problem, the solution that is given is universal and isn't simply to be said, oh, that just related to that local church. This is for what? It is for all churches. 1 Corinthians 7, 17, but as God has distributed to every man as the Lord have called every one, so let him walk. And so ordain I in all churches. And remember there, the word churches is referring to different congregations, the body of Christ, because there was no such thing as denominations hanging around at that time. I could say something else there, but I'll hush my mouth. Anyway, but 2 Timothy 2 and 2. And the things that thou hast heard of many, many, many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. How is the apostolic teaching going to continue? How is it going to be done? Because faithful men would take the same words and they would deliver the same words. There's no idea here that the culture is going to reinterpret the scriptures. The constant idea is it's ungoing. In Romans 6, 17, but God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you've obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered to you. Form, pattern, in sample. Throughout the word, we find, as I said, many examples that the word of God is enduring and will not be changed by cultural interpretation. In 2 Peter, Peter said what? He said the scriptures did not come by the will of man. You know what you could say there? The scriptures did not come because of the cultural knowledge of the day. He said, not by, the, by, not by the will of man, but holy men as they carried along by the Holy Spirit. He goes on down further and talks about how in his before his death, he wanted to write things so that in his decease, they would still remember the things that's been delivered. Why care to remember them if they're going to be changed? There was no such expectation or anticipation among the apostles of Jesus Christ when they delivered the scriptures, even though they were in a first cultural setting. Uh, let's recognize this. We're talking about physical responses or actions that's symbolic of a spiritual principle. We could think of the holy kiss, foot washing, the covering for men and women, lifting up holy hands in prayer, jewelry and braided hair. A big list of those could be considered under this 
When do we have a cultural expression that can be changed and still be relevant and not violate pattern theology? I thought that was my way out. I should have just talked about them rather than what we're going to talk about. But that's what happens sometimes when you're not too wise. The significant is the critical pattern theology brings us to realize cultural influence must be looked at in light of the word of God. I want to try to illustrate this with the holy kiss. I'm supposed to have been finished with that right now. Now, as you well know that there are four times in the scriptures it talks about greet one another with a holy kiss. Churches Christ salute you. Brethren greet you. Greet you one another with a holy kiss. The fifth time it's mentioned, it's mentioned with a kiss of charity. These scriptures clearly indicate we're to salute or greet each other when opportunity prevails. The question is, in fulfilling this teaching, what do we have? Can we change the cultural expression and say we haven't violated pattern theology? Well, we do not understand the cultural salutation must be a kiss. But in respect, as I said, to pattern authority, we have to give some answers. I'd like to talk to you about the word holy and all it means. I'd like to talk about some of those things, but... I shall not. I need to pass along. Recognize, of course, a holy kiss. We have examples of unholy kisses. Of course, Judas quickly comes to mind. Proverbs warns us about, you know, that the, the kisses of he who is deceitful has what an effect on us. On the other hand, we can see where the kiss is referred to as a fraternal affection among brethren. In Acts 20, 37, they all wept sore and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him. Thayer says the kiss with which a sign of fraternal affection. Christians were accustomed to welcome or dismiss their companions in the faith. Notice this. When we're talking, we're talking about a cultural practice that preceded the time of Christianity. This was the common salutation of the day. What's neat here is that the salutation that they commonly carried out the brethren were reminded the salutation should not be like the world. It should be free of formality, free of hypocrisy, free of prejudice from social distinctions, on and on. As we read the word of God, we see where when relatives met, they met each other with a kiss. We see that's true of friends. Uh, when we think of unholy examples of the kiss, uh, I just have to, I have to mention this one. Because this surely demonstrates unholy kiss. Joab and Amasa. Joab said to Amasa, Art thou in health, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with the right hand to kiss him. But Amasa took no heed to the sword that was in Joab's hand. So he smote him therewith in the fifth rib and shed out his bowels on the ground and struck him not again, and he died. That's a pretty vivid example. I notice among many of you that you favor beards. I would like to suggest to you, if you ever spend a night in Joab's county, you might ought to shave your beard before you go there. Anyway, that would help you to prevent a particular problem. Let me quickly look now. Let me say something, and then I want to look at reasons why I think it's reasonable to say that we can change here the cultural expression 
without violating the pattern. When we enter Christ, all customs of the past are not forbidden unless they violate the scriptures or possibly need correcting and meaning. Customs must be considered in light of the principle they manifest and whether they conflict with a given spiritual principle or promote temptation. That's a worthy consideration. Think of some of the lengthy discussions we get into about customs. And we have to look at that. Customs of the past that do not violate the scripture or create temptation does not necessarily have to be shed. <clears throat> Here's the thing about the holy kiss. It was already the physical salutation practiced by the church. In other words, it wasn't introduced by the apostles. It was already the common salutation. The apostles did not initiate the salutation, but spoke to regulating the greeting <clears throat> so it would be holy or charitable. The word holy, of course, we see is always is found with this salutation, and we understand what is strongly trying to admonish the brethren about their salutations. We see when cultural expressions or customs of the day are used to illustrate everlasting spiritual principles, the physical cultural action can change across the cultures as long as the symbolic meaning is not violated. I want to try to illustrate that with the following. <clears throat> the culture I was raised in typically was a culture where we met each other with a handshake. Now, when I say the culture I was raised in, uh, I'm more than 30 years old. But anyway, that typical culture, how did they meet? Shook hands, right? As the years passed, what did I notice among brethren? Well, I noticed that a lot of them started to embrace. I noticed the culture does too. But what's my point? So I move away from a congregation. I move away from a congregation that typically I know everybody embraces. And so I write back to them a letter because of my love for them. And uh, when I write back to them, I say, remember to practice the holy hug. Now, when I wrote that back to them, remember to practice the holy hug. Contactually, what have I done? Did I tell them to holy hug? No, they were already hugging. So my holy goes with what? To describe the nature of the salutation. The contextual setting of the reference of the holy kiss doesn't fit the you. This might be a little technical, a little subjective, but I think not. The contextual setting of the reverence of the holy kiss doesn't fit the usual setting of a command. Where do we find commands typically embedded in salutations or general closing letters in the New Testament? Furthermore, most doctrinal commands find other verses clarifying or giving added support to the teaching. But with this greeting, such is not found. It's interesting that the mode of the kiss itself is never clarified. 
The only place I can think of that the mode of kiss is actually clarified is the Song of Solomon. And that's a far, far different contextual setting. <clears throat> Typically, the expression of a command is detailed with the aid of multiple scriptures. The teaching on baptism, the Lord's Supper, leaves no question of not originating due to a first century cultural practice. This is why we believe it's reasonable reasons to say here's a cultural change without violating pattern theology. An interesting observation about this <clears throat> is among the many writings that's been made about it, I don't think I've ever found a scholarly writing that pointed out that this was a command. On the other hand, what Paul said still holds to this day. It must be holy and considered with no germ of lust within it, if that's the way you're going uh, to greet. Bear with me. I've got to hasten. Let me get to my second question. The second question, if you remember, you may not by now. The second question, of course, was this. What about verses that speak of an ordained command that many claim is outdated due to not understanding the cultural setting at the time of writing. When such a claim is made in those verses that's so controversial, in those verses of that nature, is there something clearly there that says to you and me, the plea of cultural oration or cultural conditioning cannot be applied and is correct. It's not unusual when you get into this cultural change. Well, one side will find some secular readings that agree with what they think about the culture of that day. The other side finds the readings they like that say what they say. So you get a big expansion going on, a big expression back and forth about a whole lot about culture that ambiguously no one really knows what the answer is. What's the key there? The key is not to let secular cultural writings determine what the Word of God explicitly says regarding a particular subject. Admittedly, now we recognize this, admittedly the more one can understand the cultural setting of a writing, the better the likelihood of understanding it. The knowledge of cultural practice can certainly embellish a fuller understanding of a given passage, but being ignorant of the nuances of the cultural background doesn't mean the message passage can't be understood. You know, if you're fancy and you want to throw a little new idea at somebody, you find some little, something you can make a little zing with it. Well, if you can better understand the cultural expression, maybe you can do that. For example, think about this. Why did Elijah suggest Mount Carmel? Why did Elijah suggest Mount Carmel? Well, we understand the Baal believers thought that was where Baal dwelt. Oh, well, if that little cultural nuance is right, yeah, that can make me get the guy that was about to fall asleep look up at me at least while I'm speaking. Because what's the point here? Well, if Baal couldn't succeed on his home court, you know the rest of the story. Ten plagues. The cultural information we have about that is that each of those plagues 
actually point to inferiority of the gods or the goddesses of Egypt at that time. So you see, culture can embellish, but culture doesn't erase a divine, eternal principle. And that's the kind. And so in these passages, like 1 Corinthians 11, 1 through 16, and 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 15, what's often dismissed in the controversy over those verses? What is considered cultural conditioning? Well, the problem here is they speak of cultural conditioning, but they overlook the most critical variable. What's the critical variable in 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Timothy 2? It's not culture. The main thing is what? It's by the creation order. Here's a little thing I'd like for you to take with you. Whenever in the scriptures... The basis of reasoning behind something is attributed to the creation order. That, of course, throws away all cultural ideas that people might try to bring in to remove that biblical teaching. Now, we may have some disagreements within it, but the point is, remember this, my brothers and sisters. When a scripture is based upon a creation order, no cultural plea can be used to remove whatever that biblical truth is at that time. That would help a lot of people. Think of all the discussions we've had on 1 Corinthians 11 between people. This idea, that idea, this culture, that culture. And the truth is it's introduced something that's simply superficial to the whole situation has nothing to do with it because why? We're discussing what? The creation order. That's one of those little hermeneutical principles that I think that uh, uh, needs to be underlined. First Corinthians 11, 8, 9, listen. For the man's not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. First Timothy 2 and 12. But I suffer not a woman to teach nor exercise authority over the man, but to be in silence. Why, Paul? Why? Well, Adam was first formed in Eve. Now we're not talking about inferiority or superiority, any of that stuff. I just want you to follow the fact that a passage like that, you cannot introduce a cultural element when the creation order is the foundation of the reasoning for what has stated. Many of the writings on these passages reveal a common failing in accepting pattern theology. How? By reading a cultural conditioning into the passage. Note what I'm about to say, please. The introducing of a cultural variable results in, I have such a trouble with this word, relativizing, relativizing the meaning of a passage. Let me illustrate it like this. How many writers have you read you always have to correct my words. Somehow my tongue tangles around something. Somebody hit me one time in the mouth, but we'll leave that alone anyway. Now, here's the point I want to simply make. What's the common practice of many writers when it comes to the subject of the covering in 1 Corinthians 11? Well, many of them will say, well, in that day and time culturally, uh, prostitutes did not wear a covering. So now the whole issue is Culturally, in that setting, 
What's Paul teaching? Oh, he's just teaching what? He's the teaching that you shouldn't appear in some way that would be scandalous. But now I want you to think about what is done here. The problem is in introducing a cultural practice of the day, it's putting words in Paul's mouth. Paul plainly states the discussion regarding the covering is what? He plainly states that it relates to the creation order. It doesn't have anything to do with prostitution. It doesn't have anything to do with other verses you can read in culture where the women wore a covering. All of that takes away from the very argument that Paul's making. Whatever I'm saying about the covering, he said, relates to what? The creation order. So why spend 40 minutes discussing other cultural things that you cannot substantiate because this is what it's about. This is what I meant about here is a variable that shows you in some of these passages that are so extremely important, it shows us what? If it mentions the creation order, you can forget about all the cultural appeals. Let me see where I'm at. Jumping. Creation found truth never bows. Let me repeat that. Creation found truth never bows to cultural conditioning. You know, Jesus gives us an example of this. Jesus recognized how strong a creation order argument was when culture was in the midst of a controversy. Do you remember this? Jesus goes beyond cultural controversy over marriage and divorce by appealing to what? The creation order. The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him and saying unto him, is it lawful for man to put away his wife for every cause? And he answered and said unto them, have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? They say unto him, why did Moses then command to give a writing a divorcement and to put her away? He saith unto him, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, suffered you to put away your wives. But from the beginning, what's he using here? He's using the creation order to put in line the various cultural arguments that they were making about. And he's saying, you're missing what the, the original foundation of the truth is. That's what's happening here. The main thrust of those opposing the scripture view of limited gender roles is the culture at that time would not have permitted women in certain rules in that day. Uh, let's kind of capture here what's being done because it's done subtly. What they're really saying is this. They're saying, okay, at that particular time and that time and culture, uh, the gender, they weren't, uh, they weren't able to have these roles. What they're saying is, so that's what these men wrote. But what they're saying is, later on culturally, when the culture would accept them roles, now it's all right. Uh, this is farcical for the following reason. You know, if, if, if Jesus was thought for one moment to have controlled his teaching due to the cultural expectation of the day, what would we have? We would obviously have something that would be just meaningless. When people talk about 
Jesus taught simply to fit into the culture of the day. He didn't, didn't want to disrupt it. You know, if you'd have made that argument to Jesus' enemies, they would have laughed you out of town. Why do I say that? Listen to Matthew 22 and 16. And they sent out unto him their disciples with Herodians saying, Master, we know that thou art true and teachest the way of God in truth. Neither carest thou for any man, for thou regardest not the person of men. You mean to tell me that the only reason Jesus did not appoint a woman as an apostle was because he would know and upset people in that particular day in the culture? His enemies thought more of Jesus and his teaching and his disposition that when many so-called spiritual people think today, he made this very, very clear. If we think Jesus restricted himself due to cultural expectation of the day, why is in Matthew 10, 34 through 36, he said, I didn't come to bring peace. We know what the implications of all that is. One of the problems with modern hermeneutical principles today that's been taken on, they're existential, they're subjective, and they're not interested in the intent of the writer, they're interested in their intent as a reader. They're reading in rather than taking the word of God and reading out from God's word. It's incorrect to simply assume the inspired word of God commands and practices are culturally conditioned unless there's a contextual information. You know, context is one of our most significant things in interpretation. Unless contextually you find something that modifies a previous thing that you set forth, unless you find other verses contextually, you do not remove anything by simply saying, cultural conditioning. Let me get a statement here. Listen to this statement, please. It means a lot to me. I hope it would mean to you. Here's something I considered. We need to be aware the scriptures often speak of change, not due to cultural conditioning, but due to the progression of the redemptive plan. I don't find this mentioned very often or read very often. But see, you have certain changes in God's word and people are considering them as relating to cultural change. But that has nothing to do with it all. It's because of where God is in his redemptive plan. Don't go to the Gentiles. Go to the Jews. Cultural reason or because of where we were in the redemptive plan. What Jesus did before his death, burial, and resurrection compared to what Jesus did after his death, burial, and resurrection. Cultural change? Uh-uh. Redemptive fulfillment of the plan that God has set forth from eternity. I think that is significant. I have some examples to that, but we've got to forget it. Quickly, Those who today are trying to 
modify the scriptures because of first, cultural, first century cultural conditioning or because of 20th centuries. Is this the 20th or 21st century? Whichever it is, you make the application. I guess 100 years won't change that much here. Anyway, here's simply the, the point. When we look at this particular situation, the scriptures do this. The scriptures often show us in their reasoning alone when something was done due to a cultural reason and when it wasn't done to a cultural reason. Now, if we have examples like that in the scriptures, how can we turn around and say, you can't tell the difference? Here's my illustration. Let's take Timothy, Acts 16 and 3. Him would Paul have to go forth with him and took and circumcised him because of the Jews which were in those quarters. For they knew all that his father was a Greek. Well, we can see a decision made relating to what? A cultural reason. Why? He considered the cultural reason because he wanted to do what? Know the best way to further the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, is circumcision just left to hang out there in the open? I'm going to jump over some verses, but Galatians 2, 3. But neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. Galatians 5 and 6, for in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. You see, within the scriptures we can find the things that help to define cultural conditioning versus the eternal principles of truth. The truth that Jesus authorized and preached by the apostles would be age lasting. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. I'm in Jesus in authority. I'll be with you what? Until what? It's age lasting. Authorization of the Lord, of baptism. It's based of not upon cultural. It's based upon the authority of Jesus. And it was to be what? Enduring unto the end the way that men could be saved. What about the Lord's Supper? For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he comes. How long is the Lord's Supper supposed to continue? Until culture says, well, that's not meaningful anymore. And we don't want to talk about blood. Ew. No. Until he comes. These passages are forever and ever until the Lord comes. Let me say a few words about the concept of culture. <clears throat> culture defined, of course, by different disciplines varies a lot. The total pattern of human behavior that includes thought, speech, actions, artifacts, customary beliefs, social forms. Now, what I'd like to do, let's just think about culture for a moment in terms of how we view culture in relationship to our moral and spiritual development. Now, I'm going to slight the benefits of culture here. Because, you see, by culture, we've had many benefits. Health-wise, some of you here probably today here are alive because of the benefits of the health culture of health. Now, whether it's good for you to still be alive or not, that's another question. I'm not going to touch on it. But think about communication-wise. 
Communication-wise, some of you chaps who are up to what's going on have taken communication-wise and used it to preach the gospel to the utter ends of the earth. And we're so thankful for that. So there are benefits from the technical things that we utilize. I'm so thankful to hear of how Yuns have reached the very ends of the earth as with the technical advancements of preaching. The only, while I praise you, it just makes me feel guilty, but I accept your, I think of your praise more than my guilt. We'll leave that alone. But on the other hand, let's look at this. Overall, when we look at culture in terms of our spiritual, moral circumstance, how much has it really helped us? 1 Corinthians 2 and 12, now we've received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit. Okay. I shouldn't have looked at that thing. Culture. Now we've received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. Not slighting the advantages of what culture has done for us technically. The spirit of the world here is the same as what? The cultural teachings about spirituality and moral. And Paul says, did we come up with those? By the spirit of the world? No, no. We came to those because the Holy Spirit superintended, sometimes even verbally controlled the very words that we're going to say. What we need to recognize here is part of our conflict. The general culture of the day gives us a world view of the purpose of our life based upon human reasoning and observation. But the scriptures give us a worldview how we as Christians are to look at the world based upon utilizing human reasoning as God gave it with revelation and faith. And that gives us two different, totally different worldviews. And we need to catch this. Bear with me just a minute or two. I'm over time. And I'm certainly glad Barbara's not with me. But anyway... I want you to get something of the subtlety of the new hermeneutics. When they talk about culturally bound and historical context, they're not saying the same thing that we typically would say with those words. I want to give you an example. I'll take Mr. Barclay. Here's Barclay's statement on 1 Timothy 2.12. He says, this is a passage that cannot be read out of its historical context. Well, that doesn't sound bad, does it? Well, Mr. Barclay, would you tell me what you mean? Okay. All things on this chapter are merely temporary regulations laid down to meet a given situation. What if I made this statement? What if I respond by saying... This passage cannot be read out of its historical context, for it was written by an inspired apostle, giving a practical answer to fulfill obedience to the eternal and universal truth, which matches the word of God. I think we see the answer. If cultural change is the key to understanding the scriptures, eventually you no longer will ever have the everlasting word of God directing your life. You have the word of man, revision of the scriptures based on human reasoning, negating the benefit 
of divine revelation. Jeremiah 10 and 20 through, the Lord what? O Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It's not a man that walketh to direct his steps. I want you to listen to this quote, please, carefully. R.C. Sproul, I think, highlights the difficulty of the church today. I am convinced that the problem of the influences of the 20th century secular mindset is far more formidable obstacle to accurate biblical interpretation than the problem of the conditioning of ancient culture. I think we can see that these pleas to ancient culture, we can see the fallacy of it. What's the greater danger for us as the faithful church? To discern how culture today keeps trying to change our concept of God's word and the view of the world and the purpose of our life. It's time for me to sit down and I shall do so if you'll just let me say one thing. When difficult passages arise, please listen to this. When difficult passages arise dealing with custom and principle and uncertainty and we are unsure of the final conclusion, what is helpful? Would it be better to treat a possible custom as a principle and be guilty of being overscrupulous in our design to obey God? Now listen. Or would it be better to treat a possible principle as a custom and be guilty of being underscrupulous in demoting a transcendent requirement of God to the level of a mere human convention? That's a rhetorical question, I pray. The Word of God, the Word of God shows by the prophecies of the Old Testament how to cross the chasm from a carnal commandment to a spiritual commandment. And if the word of God does that within it, certainly the word of God today still controls the godly mind over the culture of the day. Boy, I sure hate I didn't get to use my last illustration. Thank you for your patience. Amen. Oh, that's right. I've got to I gotta stay up here. We, we now want to open the question and answer time frame. And so if anybody wants to ask Ron about his last illustration of the question, I'd, uh, what was that, Art? I said, if, if, if anyone would like to ask as a question, what was your last illustration? I told them they could still do that in the question and answer part. I hope somebody will suggest that so that I don't have to suggest it myself. <laughs> I got two illustrations. Can I use them? <laughs> <laughs>